As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yo, technology, what is it all about? As a high schooler growing up in the 1990s, I listened to a lot of hip-hop. One of the legends that emerged in those days was the Wu-Tang Clan out of New York. I loved Wu-Tang Clan. Perhaps their best-known song was Cream, which was an acronym that stood for Cash Rules Everything Around Me. Cash Rules Everything Around Me. Remember those words. They'll be important later on. Now, lots changed since 1993 when that song came out. I have less hair, the Wu-Tang Clan has broken up, and one of its members, Ghostface Killa, has become the latest celebrity to try to cash in on the financial craze of 2017. Cryptocurrencies. This month, the rapper announced plans to launch his own digital currency called Cream Cash, which he plans to use to finance a network of cryptocurrency ATMs. And all he needs is good people like you and me to buy $30 million of his new digital cash to get the venture off the ground. And he's not alone. Everyone from Paris Hilton to Floyd Money Mayweather, Silicon Valley entrepreneurs, respected investors, and total shysters have attached their names to cryptocurrency deals. If Ghostface Killer is successful, Cream Cash would join the more than 700 other cryptocurrencies already in circulation. Yes, 700. I'm guessing you probably have heard of Bitcoin, but a bit fuzzy on the other 699. Me too. But together, the world's cryptocurrencies are now worth more than $150 billion. For context, two years ago, they were worth, combined, less than $5 billion. So what's going on? Since 2016, 250 companies have done so-called initial coin offerings, or ICOs, a form of digital crowdfunding that has exploded onto the scene as the preferred way to create these new currencies. Together, they have raised more than $2 billion. Amazingly, more than half of that has happened since July, in just four months. And hundreds more are planned. The zealots claim that what we're witnessing is the beginning of a new technocentric era, that the end of fiat currencies like the dollar and the institutions that prop them up is coming into view. It's a libertarian's dream. The skeptics see something far less remarkable, a bubble that will soon pop, much like the 99 internet meltdown. So which is it? In this special episode this week of Danny in the Valley, we're going to dive headfirst into this wild world. So stick with us. My hope is that by the end of this show, you'll have a slightly better idea of why most cryptocurrencies will fall far short of what they're promising, and why blockchain, the distributed ledger system that underlies all of these virtual currencies, tokens and coins, may just end up being what its many zealots claim. You may want to just think of it as the new internet. Basically, the entire internet today is going to go away. And it's going to be replaced by an upgraded version of the internet. 
We'll get to that, but let's start with the basics. Just what is a cryptocurrency? It's a medium of exchange. Think of it as cash, but without a central authority like a bank to reconcile transactions between two parties. So no one entity is balancing the books, keeping track of who paid who, what, and when. Now that, in theory, should be a problem. I may have $5 to my name, but I could happily write checks all over town if there was no bank manager who's checking my balance and chasing me down. The genius at the heart of cryptocurrencies is blockchain, which replaces the trusted central authority with a system based on absolute consensus. Instead of one entity holding the spreadsheet, there are hundreds of thousands of copies of the same one, housed on computers around the world and updated constantly. Once a transaction is done, the record is uploaded and instantly propagates across the entire network. No double counting, no bounce checks. Because it is in the hands of thousands instead of one, it makes it extremely hard to fiddle with. And the whole system is secured not by lock and key, but by math, cryptography. So trust, in other words, has been outsourced from one, or the very few, to the many. The 2008 financial crisis really set the table for this idea. Banks collapsed, the real estate market crumbled, currencies crashed, and even some countries teetered on the edge. Our faith in the authorities was shaken. So a stateless, incorruptible, decentralized, and transparent system to exchange things of value suddenly looked quite appealing. And in fact, it was in 2008 when the idea for Bitcoin, the original cryptocurrency, was first posited in a white paper by Satoshi Nakamoto, its elusive founder. The paper laid out the architecture for what it called a peer-to-peer -peer version of electronic cash that would allow online payments to be sent directly from one party to another without going through a financial institution. It was a Pandora's box. That principle of an ultra-secure peer-to-peer network to record transactions need not apply to money alone. It could obviate the need for middlemen of all stripes, from venture capitalists to lawyers and estate agents, ad buyers, and of course, central banks the guys who print today's fiat currencies like the dollar, pound, and yen. It's an alluring idea. But what's interesting is that it was only this year that cryptocurrencies really took off. Why? I talked to Aswath Damodaran, a professor at NYU's Stern School of Business, who has a pretty good take on this. I think we live in an age of distrust. People don't trust central authority. They don't trade. And this is not unique to the U.S. It's true across the world. People just don't trust centralized authorities, central banks, governments, and that is an environment that's rife for new currencies to be created. And that's exactly, I think, what we're seeing is this is an extension of what we saw last year with Brexit and the U.S. elections is a rejection of experts, rejection of authority. And to me, this is part of a broader trend, which is we don't trust these experts we're going to go with the crowd. And you know, why should we try a fiat currency is ultimately based on trust in a central authority. So anything that leads you to lose faith in centralized authorities is essentially a plus for the, for the cryptocurrency world. The currency most people know best is Bitcoin. As a financial reporter, I've known about it for years, but it had always been a bit of a sideshow. This kind of interesting digital currency thing hanging around in the background that, for some reason, was deeply beloved by the Winklevoss twins. But everything changed this year. As ICOs took off, Bitcoin went on a tear. The value of one Bitcoin zoomed past $5,600 compared to just 635 a year ago. It's a ninefold increase. Another cryptocurrency that has come out of nowhere is Ether, which is used on the Ethereum blockchain protocol. It has gone from $12 at the beginning of the year to 328 a 27-fold increase. 
With those kinds of returns, who wouldn't want to get in on the fun? Which brings us back to our friend Ghostface Killer. Let's walk through his plan because I think it will help illuminate how this all works and where the potential dangers are lurking. So the window to invest in Cream's ICO opens on November 11th. Their goal is to raise $30 million by offering new Cream Cash tokens. Now, Ghostface Killer was unfortunately unavailable for interview. But his 21-year-old co-founder and CEO, Brett Westbrook, was. He explained the big idea. We are building out what is going to be the largest and most expansive cryptocurrency ATM network in the world. So today, it can take weeks or even months for the average puncher to get certified by an online exchange before they can start trading cryptocurrencies. Westbrook says Cream's goal is to roll out up to 800 ATMs to solve that problem of accessibility. The idea is that all you'll need is a government-issued ID, and you can go and buy Bitcoin from one of these holes in the wall, or pull money out of your Bitcoin or a handful of other cryptocurrency accounts. They have a few in operation today. We already have six of them up and running in North Carolina. There's actually a window of opportunity in North Carolina. So a while back, before, uh, or actually right at the inception of Cream Capital and when we were getting this done, we came in contact with a guy named Parker Emerson. He's actually an advisor and he advises our ATM distribution network expansion. But he is from North Carolina. And he owns a company called the Bitcoin Dispensary. We actually ended up brokering a, a licensing deal for now so that we can take over those ATMs and bring them in network and get our hands uh, on, or get on hands with these ATMs and how they work and what comes with operating ATM network. And we are using that as sort of the, the beginning hub for what we're gonna be doing with ATMs. We have six machines online right now, operational in North Carolina, places, uh, high, high traffic places like the Crab Valley Tree Mall, right next to the Apple store in there. So these are like, these are like prime time locations. Fine. So they want to roll out ATMs. What does that have to do with cream cash? It's an important question and it gets to the way an ICO is typically structured. An ICO doesn't offer people an equity stake in the business in question. Rather, it offers coins or tokens issued by that new business, which are usable as part of the new ecosystem that company is building. In this case, cream capital's network of ATMs. If Cream achieves its vision, its value as a company will grow, as will the value and utility of the primary currency needed to pay for services in its ecosystem, like, say, deposit and withdrawal fees. Still not clear? Here's Professor DeModeron again. The analogy I would offer is, think about, have you ever seen Disney dollars? If you go to a Disney theme park, they used to have Disney dollars where you could actually trade in your money. It made your kids feel good because what you do is you trade in real money and they give you Disney dollars. And you could use the Disney dollars so you could pay for stuff as if they were regular dollars. But the minute you left the theme park, they were worthless. And the problem with ICOs is you're, you're effectively doing the same thing, is you're accepting a currency that, that's useful only in that very small space. And to me, that's a very dangerous thing to do. Because if that space disappears, you basically are left with worthless currency. To me, currency is a continuum. You've got, so it's not a zero one currency, not a currency. It's a continuum from really bad currency to a really good currency. The US dollar, the euro, the Japanese yen are really good currencies. Why? Because I can put a hundred US dollars in my pocket, travel anywhere in the world and be able to use those dollars to kind of get by. I mean, I can pay for a taxi in Mumbai with dollars and the cab driver is happy to take the dollars. 
the Indian rupee is not as good a currency as the U.S. dollar because I can use the Indian rupee in India, but if I take the Indian rupee and go into a U.S. store and try to pay in rupees, that guy's not going to take it. The Venezuelan bolivar is a horrible currency. Even in Venezuela, people don't want to take the currency because they're afraid of what it's worth 15 minutes later. So it's really when people argue about, you no, know, is, is Bitcoin a currency or not a currency? They're missing the point. Bitcoin is a currency. ICOs are a currency. They're just not very good currencies because they're not good medium of, mediums of exchange. I can't use them in lots of places. And I don't see a scenario where you're laying the foundations where that's going to happen. And that's my concern with these cryptocurrencies is right now they're just speculative instruments. People are interested in them because they think they can make money on Bitcoin. They're not interested in them because they think one day they expect to carry Bitcoin in their pockets and pay for things with Bitcoin. And that concerns me. Is there's a disconnect between calling these cryptocurrencies but never talking about what you need to do to make them good currencies. Good currencies basically means you don't think of them as investments. You think of them as currencies. You basically think of them as mediums of exchange that you use to buy something, buy a good, buy a service, sell a good, sell a service. Good currencies should be in the background. They should never be front and center. And I cannot say that about Bitcoin or Ethereum or any of these cryptocurrencies is they all want to hog the spotlight. What makes them interesting is how much the price has gone up in the last year. There are other worrying signs because what most ICOs are selling are billed as currencies and not investment products like shares. They're not regulated yet. This allows them to take an approach that is a bit more seat of the pants than if you were pitching for traditional venture capital or other investors. So the way it usually works is that anyone who wants to do an ICO publishes a white paper online, which lays out the basics of the idea. When the ICO window opens, interested parties typically use another cryptocurrency like Bitcoin or Ether to buy up the new tokens on offer. The cryptocurrency the company receives can then be sold via any number of online exchanges for cold, hard cash, which can in turn be used to hire people and start working. And that's the thing. Most ICOs are launched without a product. It's money for an idea. Cream's white paper is all of 13 pages. And let's just say that the founding story of its executive team, who are scattered all over the world, may not inspire confidence for some. Ghostface is a longtime partner of ours here at Cream Capital. He's, he's known Manish for a long time. Manish, our, our CFO Manish, met him at the gym a few years back, and, and they've been good friends, and they've, they've launched a lot of ventures together. I got, I got connected with these guys over a year ago during a Reddit AMA that Ghost was holding. And AMA is, it stands for Ask Me Anything. Basically, celebrities and public figures will go on these forums and they'll hold an AMA where people can ask them any, anything and they'll, they'll interact with the community and answer questions. So that's how I got connected with these guys. And, and we've been working together for over a year. So Cream has a handful of ATMs, including, of course, the one next to the Apple store in the Crabtree Valley Mall. It's run by a 21-year-old who met Ghostface Killer online and a CFO who happened to work out at the same gym as the retired rapper. They threw together a 13-page business plan, which they hope will be enough to convince people to hand them $30 million. So would you invest? I'm not picking on cream here. In the Wild West of ICOs, they're pretty typical. And they may very well succeed. Plenty of others have. What's even more extraordinary is that companies are raising sums, often tens of millions of dollars, at a stage when, in a world without ICOs, they'd be lucky to squeeze out a couple hundred grand from a professional investor just to see if their idea works. And that, it seems to me, is the point. Cream cash may work, but it may also end up being as useful as a fistful of Disney dollars. 
And keep in mind, there are 700 other cryptocurrencies and counting. But some are already moving in to bring some adult supervision to this world. Andy Bromberg is the chief executive of CoinList, which was recently started up to become the Goldman Sachs of the crypto world. I'll let him explain. CoinList wants to be the leading financial services company for all digital asset companies. And what that looks like today is uh, being the place where the best token sales host their ICOs. We're trying to be the place where, where the good, good things, the signal, not the noise, hosts their initial coin offerings and, and gets their start. And then further down the road, we want to provide all manner of financial services to those companies. But we're starting with a really compliance-focused offering because we think that's where the shortcoming is in the space, or at least one of them, is that these companies can't handle the compliance and regulatory burden of hosting their own token sales. And that's a place where we can step in, we can provide our expertise in conjunction with their legal counsel and build out the compliance process from a technical and, and tactical level that allows them to run a sale in, in a manner that complies with all relevant securities laws and regulations. The idea of creating an investment bank for cryptocurrencies, which of course are seeking to eliminate the need for exactly that kind of middleman is, on the face of it, a bit ironic. I asked Bromberg, how do people react when he comes over all bankery? There's certainly some pushback from people that a service like ours is unnecessary, but a lot of these offerings are filing as securities. And if they're filing as securities, there are regulations they need to comply with in whatever jurisdiction they're, they're launching in. Or even if they're not, there are regulations they need to comply with. For those that are filing or not filing and, and need some, some compliance services, those are the ones that are coming to us and we're helping out. And I'm happy to do my best to convince everyone that they should be. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. As compliant as possible, but some people may never be convinced, and as a result, they won't be our customers, and we'll focus on the ones that are doing it the right way. We've built a really strong advisory committee at CoinList and have folks around us that are helping to do that diligence. But I, you know, I don't think that it's, a, it's an answered question yet of how many cryptocurrencies will exist in the long run. Plenty of people that make the argument that there will only be one, kind of an Uber coin that will, that will win out. I think that's possible. I think it's possible that there's a limited set that each of advantages and disadvantages and can interop smoothly based on which one is best used for any specific purpose. And then I can easily imagine that there's a world where there are many, many cryptocurrencies that are active, but the usage of those is abstracted away from the majority of users down to something much more simple. We're still early there, and we're going to find out over the coming years what that ecosystem ends up looking like. 
As you may have gathered by now, there's no shortage of skeptics. But the believers? They're true believers. One of them is Brock Pierce, a pioneer in the sector. He's co-founder of a specialist venture capital firm called Blockchain Capital. Pierce was a child actor, most famous for his role in Disney's The Mighty Ducks. But I digress. Pierce invested in the first ever ICO of a company called MasterCoin in 2013. But his devotion goes back far further. I've been doing digital currency since the late 90s. My background is you know, kind of in the precursor to all of this, which was World of Warcraft, Gold, and Second Life. I was the world's largest market maker globally for the entire you know, digital economy. This is a common theme in the crypto world. Lots of the key players came to it from gaming, which is one of the first places that virtual objects, which existed only inside a game, attained value that crossed over into the real world. We understood that you know, intangible assets had value you know, earlier than more or less anyone else, which made understanding the value proposition of Bitcoin and things like it, you know, we got there faster. When you, when you say intangible assets, what do you mean? Like the, like the gold in war, war, World of Warcraft, for example? Stuff you can't touch, like Bitcoin. That's an yeah. intangible asset. Right, right. And so, you know, you hear a lot of people say, oh, this blockchain, which is the kind of underlying technology, is this could be, you know, kind of bigger than the internet. Is, it, is that true? It will be. It's almost certain. Um, I mean, it, it just, the, the, you may want to just think of it as the new internet. Basically, the entire internet today is going to go away. And it's going to be replaced by an upgraded version of the internet. And that doesn't, you know, mean that like the whole thing just goes away like that. The blockchain is just another layer to the internet. Think of the in- internet as a means of transmitting information or data, right? It's a data transferring system. Mm-hmm. But it's an insecure um, uh, mechanism for transferring data. The entire internet is insecure. Um, okay. All the blockchain is doing is adding the security layer to the internet. And so that it becomes, instead of an insecure uh, a data transfer protocol, the blockchain makes it a secure data transfer protocol. And so why would anyone want to use an insecure transfer protocol when you can use a secure one? Especially when hacking and things are continuing to become a larger and larger problem. And so basically the entire internet is just going to be upgraded to a blockchain version of the internet. So that's probably a simple way for you to think about it. As we stated before, Bitcoin is what really got this whole blockchain ball rolling. In a way, it was blockchain's proof of concept. That's pretty simple. Bitcoin is only ever going to be what it is, a currency or a store of value. Blockchain technology, however, can be applied to virtually any system in which data or things of value are exchanged which is why there's so much excitement about Ethereum, a robust and more malleable protocol than the one Bitcoin runs on. It was invented three years ago by Vitalik Buterin, a rail-thin, t-shirt-wearing 23-year-old Russian programmer who travels the world spreading the blockchain gospel. As we said earlier, Ether, the currency of the Ethereum network, has jumped 27-fold since the start of the year. That is, in part, because many ICOs actually use Ethereum as a platform for the tokens they're offering. An analogy that I often hear is that if Bitcoin is a calculator, then Ethereum is a computer. It can just do a lot more stuff. It's perhaps not surprising then that Ethereum has garnered some pretty heavyweight backers very quickly. The Enterprise Ethereum Alliance, an organization set up to help big business figure out ways to use Ethereum, has more than 100 corporate partners, including the likes of BP, Microsoft, Toyota, and MasterCard. Why? Because it represents both an opportunity and a threat. Demodoran gives banks as but one example of an exposed industry. 
So let's say I want to wire $10,000 or $1,000 to somebody across to the on the other coast. So basically, I go to JP Morgan and I say, look, I want to send the wire. They send the wire out to the other bank. And then they charge me $25 for the service they provide, which is essentially to make sure that the money left from a legitimate account and went to a legitimate account. For that service, they charge me $25, maybe even $40. And that's a very simple transaction. And those are the transactions that are the cream of the crop for banks. That's how they make the easy money. So those transactions for which they're charging $25, $40, $50, you say, that makes no sense. That's so little work for you. Why do you do this? Take three days and $40 to, to clear a wire. So it's not like all banking is going to disappear. There are certain transactions where you still need a bank. But the transactions for which they charge these hefty fees, for which they provide very little in return, are the first transactions that are going to get disrupted by the blockchain. They hope to disrupt themselves. So one of the biggest investors in blockchain is actually the banks. They're putting in large amounts of money into the blockchain, hoping that they can be the ones who provide the disruption. But the history of disruption is, <clears throat> is it almost never comes from the establishment. It comes from outside because the banks have too much to lose. Now, banks are just the tip of the iceberg. And this is where things get really interesting. It's hard to think of anything that can't in some way potentially use the blockchain. Like, for example, monetizing human knowledge. Now, that sounds far out, but Ariel Jalali is far more eloquent on this than I am. He's the co-founder of a Los Angeles startup called Sensei. I'll let him explain the problem he's trying to solve. Every large website that we participate in for free, in heavy air quotes, tells you that you, you own that data. In fact, at any point in time, you can actually request an archive for that data. There's no readily available marketplace for that information. And in fact, when you look at the fact that we spend about an average of, let's say, five hours a day on our mobile phones, and most of what we're spending our time on are these social services. And you look at like, well, how much money did I make out of that activity? It's a good chunk of a work day, right? It starts looking like work. A teenager spends more, upwards of six hours a day. And then you look at the numbers and you see that, you know, Facebook has made $8 billion in quarterly ad revenue last quarter. So there's clearly a value to that data. And we just want to do two, two things. We want you to own it, and we want you to be able to, you know, get value from it. Jalali started Sensei in 2014 with Crystal Rose, who I found out toward the end of my reporting for this story is married to Brock Pierce. If there was ever such thing as a blockchain power couple, they're it. Sensei created an engine that connects people looking for information with those who can provide it. It's pretty simple. You add Sensei into your contacts book, and when you have a question, instead of messaging a friend, you message Sensei. It then uses some very clever technology to find someone from among the millions of other humans who are on that network, and who just might have the answer you may be looking for. If it's a good one, you can send them a digital coin of appreciation. Until now, however, that's all it's been. A coin with no value other than the warm and fuzzies you get from receiving one. You can probably guess where this is going. Next week, Sensei hopes to raise $25 million in a sale of what it has dubbed Sense Tokens. Traditionally, we wanted a, a token, no pun intended, of gratitude. And we started with our own closed-loop currency called Sensei Coins. And they weren't pegged to any sort of dollar or anything like that. But, you know, over the course of usage, our, our community of like 3 million users have, have exchanged 21 million plus Sensei Coins. And the number one thing that they ask us is, what is this all worth? So that's, that's how we kind of came to this journey, you know, giving that 
knowledge work and attribution some sort of value. It's a digital asset like, you know, Karma and Reddit or, or you know, or Golden World of Warcraft. Although at this point, you, know, you can't buy into it. You have to actually earn in or knowledge in. You give me a Sensei coin. Our very first step is going is it will be converting all of our users that have balances in Sensei coins over to our Sense token, which will be an ERC20 token on the Ethereum blockchain. I said the B word. <laughs> so there are kind of two modes to this. Like, you know, once you attribute your knowledge, there's sort of a, a synchronous mode and then there's an asynchronous mode. The synchronous mode is easier for us to wrap our heads around. It's like you and I have a conversation about history. You help me out. You tell me about the French and Indian War, all the causes and all the stuff that happened there. But where it gets really exciting is once we have that recorded and attributed, you own half that asset as a conversation, and I own half that asset. Let's just take the Sensei example, right? This Sensei will be the first of a number of applications on this Sense network. And where it gets really interesting is like you and I go to sleep that night, and a robot comes or some sort of AI comes wanting to make itself smarter about the French and Indian War. And all of a sudden, you get attribution, I get attribution. Whoever the developer was to, to put that interaction together gets permanent attribution. This is very important because it creates a means for passive income and attribution for the average person. It makes you wonder how Mark Zuckerberg or the guys at Google, who profit more than any other company from the information we toss around online, feel about the blockchain. As you can see, once you start to peel back the layers of how things work today, you can see how dramatically things may change. I mean, I know a lot about the Golden State Warriors teams of the 1980s. If I could get paid for that, yes please. But before you start memorizing trivial pursuit cards, a word of caution. We talked earlier about how important cryptography is to blockchain. But it's worth just creeping into the weeds a little bit here, because once you understand how that works, some of the limitations start to become clear. So say I send you 10 bitcoins. You won't receive those until the deal has been confirmed. This confirmation work is done by what are known as miners, who are people armed with vast computing power specifically designed to crack a cryptographic puzzle which is required to unlock the block in which your deal and others are contained. Once the puzzle is solved, the block is added to the chain, where it stays for eternity for all to see. Now miners aren't doing this out of the goodness of their hearts. For every block they unlock, they receive bitcoins as compensation. But there are some potential problems lurking here. I'll let Professor DeModoran explain. If you see in the movies of the, from the 1940s when when people were trying to break the the Nazi uh, you know secret codes and they ran the computers with zero ones and ultimately the computer would find the number and would crack the code, effectively they're doing it in today's computers using exactly the same thing. Is running through enough mathematical combinations till they hit the algorithm that solves that code and then they're the successful miner and a successful miner gets rewarded with additional bitcoins. And that, I think, is one thing also to factor in. Right now, both Bitcoin and all the cryptocurrencies have slack in them. What that means is they can use the currency, itself, the cryptocurrency itself as a reward. So you get three Bitcoins if you solve it, which is worth a lot right now. The problem, though, is Bitcoin is limited to 21 million. That's an absolute cap. You can't get above 21 million. My question is, let's say you get up to 21 million, you hit the cap. Now, how do you pay miners, right? Because now you can't create fresh Bitcoin 
And then the answer you get is oh, people say, well, the, you save enough in transactions fees that you can pay a transaction fee, but they're saying, trust us, something good will happen in terms of technology for that to be able, to, for, for us to be able to do that. It begs the question, if miners can throw all kinds of computing power, time, and resource into cracking codes, can't bad guys too? The short answer is yes. Last year, for example, more than $50 million of virtual cash was purloined from one of the most well-funded blockchain upstarts, DAO or DAO. Now, that's not to say it's easy. It's a lot harder than, say, hacking a Yahoo email account. But clearly, it can and is being done. Orion Hindawi is the co-founder of cybersecurity firm Tanium, which looks after 12 of America's top 15 banks, as well as Barclays in Britain. I asked him about this very effective job of branding cryptocurrencies as unhackable. What do you mean unhackable? The North Koreans are making lots of money hacking machines and stealing cryptocurrency right now. It's a lot harder to steal money out of your wallet than it is for me to breach your computer and steal your wallet. The reality of the situation is, if you thought we were trusting computers to be secure before, then with cryptocurrency, you as a consumer better be sure that you understand your cyber hygiene yourself. because. If somebody's able to go and get your, your wallet there, they have all of your money and there's no recourse. And I don't know who to call. There are lots of problems with standard currency, like government mandated fiat currency. But one of the good things is there are laws around it and you can actually govern it effectively and you can actually protect it and there are banks that hold it and there's like all kinds of recourse there. Look, I think blockchain is great. Everybody does. As an idea, it's an amazing idea. Practically, you are really taking your security into your own hands in a pretty fundamental way. There's another obstacle standing in the way of blockchain's global domination. And it's so mundane that it kind of knocks the legs out of the notion that blockchains and cryptocurrencies are the panacea to all of our problems. What is it, you ask? Really high energy bills. Here's Professor DeModoran again. The miners here are really solving mathematical algorithms. And the way they solve them is with brute force. It's not with brilliance, it's brute force. It requires a computer running, which is part of the reason it's got to be in Mongolia or the middle of Australia because you need cheap electricity. And that's why I said the test for these blockchains will be whether the cost of checking a transaction is going to be low enough in a blockchain that it displaces the traditional way of doing things. because. It is actually incredibly resource intensive in terms of how much power it uses, how many people are actually working on solving this mathematical algorithm. And the reason they're in Mongolia is because power is cheap and therefore they can run these computers, you know, a hundred million times to solve an algorithm. So the blockchain revolution still has some kinks to work out before we see the end of usurious bank overdraft fees or the dawn of the era where we get paid for our knowledge of the French and Indian War, which is fair enough. This idea isn't even a decade old, after all. The direction of travel to some, however, could not be more clear. What's happening in the world is, you know, we're decentralizing everything. Decentralized systems are generally going to be far cheaper, more resilient, more secure, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, that world's going to move in that direction. Prior to the Industrial Revolution, most of the world's people were entrepreneurs. It was the Industrial Revolution that created these large centralized institutions that took entrepreneurs and turn them into employees. And I think we're going back to the pre-industrial revolution, except for we're going to have incredible technology that makes our lives awesome. I hope it does make our lives awesome. And I wish Ghostface Killa, Brett Westbrook, and the rest of the team luck. But in the great crypto craze of 2017, I think I'll stay on the sidelines. To quote Wu-Tang, cash still rules everything around me. 
iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.